0: In your Bibles, to Ezra chapter seven. That's page four five nine in the Church Bibles, or seven three seven in the large print Bibles. Ezra chapter seven. Before we come to that, though, let's uh, let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we Uh, have talked about you being a sovereign God and how you uh, answer prayer and work for your people and we pray that even now as your word is preached that your spirit would work through these words and that they would challenge our hearts and shape us and mould us into the image of your son Jesus. Lord, without your help, these words are nothing but words but with your spirit working through those words These are life-changing words. So we pray, Father, that you would work tonight. Stretch out your hand, we pray, among us. For we need you, our Lord. Amen. Amen. If I was to ask you who is the most influential person in the Bible, most of you would say Jesus, I'm sure. But if I was to say other than Jesus, who is the most influential character in the Bible, well, you could have any number of people. You could have Abraham, or Moses, or David, or maybe some of you would say Paul the Apostle. But I wonder how many of you would have Ezra on your list. Uh, I read an article naming the top 25 uh, most influential or important people in the Bible, according to the person who wrote the article, of course. Ezra was not on any one of those 25 people, but perhaps he should be. Ezra is someone that a lot of Christians don't know a lot about, and yet he is one of the most important people and one of the greatest examples in the whole of the Old Testament of the Bible. So far in the book of Ezra, we have seen in six chapters that we haven't come across Ezra at all. We've read chapters 1 to 6, and the book is called Ezra, And we haven't heard the name once, apart from when we say, turn to the book of Ezra. So far, we have heard lots of names. We've heard this decree from King Cyrus in chapter 1, causing the children of God to return to their homeland following the exile. And in chapter 2, we saw the list of names of the people that went back. At this time, there was this huge movement of God amongst his people and in moving the hearts of King Cyrus to enable the people to go back. So we saw the return of the people. Then in chapters 3 to 6, we saw them rebuild the temple. The temple had been destroyed, and they began to rebuild. In chapter 3, we saw it was with a return to true worship, as prescribed in the book of Moses, and the establishment of the altar. But in chapter 4 we saw that this work was opposed. People didn't want the work of God to carry on. And so it was opposed. And it caused the work to come to a standstill for 16 long years. But then in chapter 5, God again is on the move. This time, he works through his prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, who use dynamic preaching to stir the people up to move and serve the Lord. And at the end of chapter 6, we saw this temple completed And there was a great celebration as this work was done. All through the book so far, from the beginning where the heart of King Cyrus was moved, up to the end of chapter 6 where this temple was completed, the hand of God has been clearly moving among his people. God moves and things start to happen. And in fact the phrase, the hand of the Lord, is perhaps the key to the whole of this book. The hand of the Lord moving among his people. And certainly it's the key phrase in this passage tonight in Ezra chapter 7. The hand of the Lord. And as we come to Ezra chapter 7, we see the reason we haven't seen Ezra so far. It's because he comes in the book 60 years after the previous chapter. We've had a break for a number of weeks and it was a good point to break. We haven't had 60 years break, we've had a few weeks. But Ezra was 60 years later as he comes to chapter 7. He's, uh, he is, God has been on the move all through this book and now we're going to see God on the move again in this chapter. The first move was to get the people to return. The second move was to get the people to rebuild. And the third move here is about the restoration of the law in Israel. God moves in these last chapters to cause his people to be a holy people? How do we know if God is at work among us? How do we know if God is moving? The answer is this, his people become holy. We know God is at work by his people becoming holy. And we saw that this morning, didn't we? We know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. We are a holy people. And if God is at work in us, his people become holy. It's not very romantic, it's not very perhaps exciting, but it's the truth. We know when God is on the move, when his people become more like him. If we want to see God moving in our church, then our desire needs to be that we become a holy people. If we want to see God reach out into our community, and we want to see souls saved for Jesus, God works through a holy people. When you look at the history of revivals in in the church, you see that it was the church that God worked in first, that God made the church holy, that the people of God recognised their sinfulness and turned to God in repentance. But at the same time, as you look at God working all through this book, God has worked through people. And so in this seventh chapter, we see the truth that we've seen all the way through, that there are two hands at work. As we see the people revived here, it's important that we see these two important truths. And they're always true. Number one, we see the hand of Ezra, which you could say is the hand of of men. And number two, in this chapter, we see the hand of the Lord. The efforts of man and the sovereign plans of God work together in this passage to bring revival in the community that resulted in them being a holy people of God at the end of the book. And the rest of this book, and there's some difficult chapters here, uh, really hard teaching, but the rest of this book is about God's people becoming holy. That's the purpose of the rest of the book. That's what Ezra came for. And it's painful to make God's people holy but it's what God is in the work of doing. So let's see how this happens in Ezra 7, if you hopefully by now turn turned to that. Uh, We're going to read this chapter together. So Ezra chapter 7, obviously beginning at verse 1. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitob, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merioth, the son of Zeariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abushua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hands of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants also came to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord, And to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. This is a copy of the letter King Artaxerxes had given to Ezra, the priest, a teacher of the law, a man learned in matters concerning the commands and decrees of the Lord for Israel. Artaxerxes, King of Kings, to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven, greetings. Now I decree. That any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites who volunteer to go to Jerusalem with you, may go. You are sent by the king and his seven advisers to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and gold that the king and his advisers have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem." together with all the silver and gold you may attain from the province of Babylon, as well as the freewill offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. With this money, be sure to buy bulls, rams and male lambs, together with their grain offerings and drink offerings, and sacrifice them on the altar of the temple of your God in Jerusalem. You and your fellow Israelites may then do whatever seems best with the rest of the silver and gold in accordance with the will of your God. Deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God. And anything else needed for the temple of your God that you are responsible to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. Now I, King Artaxerxes, decree that all the treasurers of the trans-Euphrates are to provide diligence with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law, of the God of heaven, may ask of you. Up to a hundred talents of silver, a hundred cores of wheat, a hundred baths of wine, a hundred baths of olive oil and salt without limit. Whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and his sons? You You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute or duty on any of the priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants or other workers at this house of God. And you, Ezra in accordance with the wisdom of your God which you possess, appoint magistrates and judges to administer justice to all the people of Trans-Euphrates, all who know the laws of your God, and you are to teach any who do not know them. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property or imprisonment. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honour to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favour to me before the king and his advisers, and all the king's powerful officials. Because the hand of the Lord my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. This is God's word. And so first of all, as we look at verses 1 to 10, we see in this passage the hand of Ezra. At the beginning of this chapter, you have this genealogy which introduces him. He was a priest who had descended from Aaron. This means he was a legitimate priest. He was qualified by his birth to be priest. And because he was qualified to teach God's word, which we'll see in a moment is very important in this passage, then he was able to do so because he was born with that qualification didn't mean necessarily he had the ability, which we'll see he does. But from his birth, God had raised up this man to be a priest who could teach the law. And if God's word was going to be restored in the land, then the effort needs to be led by someone who knows the law. And we see that he wasn't just qualified by his birth, he did know the law. Look at verse 6. In verse 6, it said, This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So Ezra was well versed. The NIV uses the word here, teacher, but another word you may be familiar with in the New Testament is the word scribe. So in the New Testament, when Jesus talks about the scribes, he's talking about the descendants of Ezra. Well, if you read the New Testament, you'll see the scribes didn't imitate Ezra's life. Jesus announced woe to the scribes for their bad teaching. But Ezra was the one who laid the foundations of what would become the scribes. And he's recognised as someone who could study and interpret and teach the scriptures. That's what a scribe was. Someone that could study them, interpret them and teach them. And Ezra was good at this. It says he was well versed. He was an interpreter par excellence in Israel. If you didn't understand something in the book of Leviticus, you could go to Ezra and he would say, this is what it means. I would love to have met Ezra. So he was qualified by birth and he was qualified by ability. But most importantly, he was qualified by character. Ezra was a very important person in the Old Testament. The whole foundation of what the Jewish religion became in the New Testament started with Ezra. And it started well because he was a man of great character. Notice some of the positive character traits you can draw out about Ezra from these verses. At the end of verse 6, it says that the king granted him everything he asked for. Well, the king at this time was Artaxerxes. And if you know about the book of Nehemiah, he was also the king then. And we know from that book that that you couldn't just go up to the king and ask him a question. The king had to call you and if you were to go up yourself and ask him something you wanted, well, you could die if he didn't like your question. But Ezra asked the king and the king gave him whatever he asked for. We'll see in a moment the hand of God in that. But Ezra had courage. He had the character of courage. God used this man of courage. He asked the king For what he believed he needed. And because God was with him, which we'll talk more later on, he was granted those things. Ezra had courage. But also, in verses 8 and 9, he was a man of perseverance. Verses 8 and 9 say Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious hand of his God was on him. This was no small journey. A number of us yesterday did the Yorkshire Free Peaks so and we walked 25 miles in one day. I'm feeling it today. But unlike uh, that journey, which was just 25 miles, Ezra walked 900 miles. 900 miles and he did it in four months. That would have been an average of seven to eight miles a day. And you may not think that's very much. Some of you may think that's very far. But it was every single day in the summer months. So he could only travel in the evening at night time. And he would have to travel, not on his own, but he would have to travel with all of his equipment, all of the food that they needed, the families and everyone that came down, all together, every single day, walking, going to Jerusalem. He was a man who had perseverance. Perseverance. But most importantly, as we look at Ezra's character, look at verse 10. This is the the key verse about Ezra. Everything good about Ezra, you can link back to this verse, it says, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. It's a wonderful verse, isn't it? This man, Ezra, devoted himself to the teaching of the word of God. But the word devoted can also be translated set his heart on. That's what some translations have. He set his heart on on studying God's word. That means he, he, he purposed himself. It was his life's work to follow the word of God and to study it for himself. And that we see three things there that he set his heart on. Firstly, the study of God's word. So to study is to, to dig deep into it. It's not just to read it superficially and to put it down. Ezra opened the Bible and he studied the word. He studied it. He dug into it. He wanted to find out what it meant. But notice, secondly, how he also observed it. Observing doesn't mean he watched it. It means he lived it out. He studied it, he found out what it meant, and he lived it out for himself. He observed it. We said this morning, when we looked at 1 John, Christianity is not just about knowing lots of information. It's practical. It needs to be lived out in our lives. And God does not give us his word so we can study it, fill our brains and do nothing. He gives us his word so we know how to live for him. And Ezra epitomized this. And then finally he taught it to others. It's interesting to note that before it says he taught, it says he observed. He didn't presume to teach something that he wasn't prepared to live out for himself. And this is an example to all in our church who teach, whether that be in Sunday school or discoverers or youth work or preaching or home groups or even in our homes as we teach our children, we must be prepared to only teach what we are prepared to live out ourselves, lest we be hypocrites. He studied, he observed and he taught. And in all of these things, he set his heart on them. His purpose was to be devoted to the study, observance and teaching of the word of God. And notice how this verse uses the past tense. Ezra had devoted himself. So before this chapter, before God used him to revive the people, Ezra was hard at work, in his office, studying hard, living out God's word and teaching it to people, faithfully serving God for many years, before God used him in this amazing way which we'll see. We pray for revival in our church, in our nation, and it's right that we do. But that's not to mean that we're to be lazy Christians. We're to faithfully serve God where he places us, right now, even in a day of small things. We mustn't use prayer for God to work, to also mean, so I don't have to. That's not how we see it in the Bible. It's hand in hand, two hands at work. First of all here, before we see the hand of the Lord, we see the hand of Ezra, working faithfully for many years, studying, observing and teaching God's word, being courageous, persevering, even when perhaps nothing was happening. All of Ezra's actions throughout the rest of this book can be traced back to this verse. He set his heart on God's word. And we'll see him having to take courageous decisions regarding intermarriage at the end of the book. And he can only take those courageous decisions because he set his heart on what God had told him to do. We'll see some other godly characteristics of Ezra at the end of this chapter. In fact, as we go through the rest of Ezra, we'll see much to commend him. Hopefully he'll become one of your top 25 people in the Bible But just so far, we've seen he was called by birth. He was given abilities by God and he had godly character. All of us should be longing for God to work in our own lives, in our families, in our church. There should be prayer for conversions. We should be praying that we grow spiritually. And God does move powerfully and yes, we should pray. But the truth we see here is also we should be working. We can substitute the hand of Ezra for our own hands. What are your hands doing? Are you faithfully serving God or are you praying but not doing anything? Not all of us are called to preach or to teach God's word like Ezra did, but we are all called to different ministries in God's kingdom. All of us are called to show this character that Ezra shows here. All of us are called to be courageous. The Bible often tells us, doesn't it? Be courageous. Be strong and courageous. We read that often. Take a stand for what the Bible says. Obeying God's word, uh, which we, we said is a sign of being a Christian, but it's not an easy thing. Obeying God's word can be difficult, especially when that means other people may mock us. Or when taking a stand can cause us to lose friendships. Or when taking a stand can even cause us to lose our employment. Be courageous. When we have to tell someone the truth, when we know that they're going to hate it, we need to be courageous. We need to persevere like Ezra. Again, the Bible tells us often, doesn't it, to keep going. Run with endurance the race that is set before you. Even when the going gets tough, we're told to keep looking to Jesus at these times looking forward to what he has in store for us in glory, looking forward to him fulfilling his plans, but it's endurance. We have to keep going until the end. And then notice verse 10. Are you devoted to God's word? Are you studying it, that is, reading it, meditating? and not just picking it up and putting it down again, but stewing it over, thinking it through. And then importantly, are you observing it? James says you know, be not doers of the word be not hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. are you doing it, even the bits that are difficult, the bits that you wish were not there, and then finally, are you teaching it? Now this doesn 't mean that we'll all have to uh, do a, a sermon but it, but but what about your family? Are you teaching your children the word of god what about Uh, discussions with friends are you bringing up the scriptures when you talk about Jesus what about meeting with someone in the church to help them to understand the scriptures or just to grow together what about meeting with someone for just mutual encouragement to go through God's word teaching each other it doesn't all have to be preaching or Sunday school or something like that As, as we talk of God's word and we think about it together we can teach one another This all sounds very similar to the Great Commission, doesn't it? Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus commands us to make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Ezra was doing the same thing. He was teaching others to obey what God had commanded So in this passage, we see at first the hand of Ezra. But as we look through this chapter, the phrase that appears time and time again is the hand of the Lord. The hand of the Lord. So the second thing we see is the hand of the Lord. Now this phrase appears three times in chapter 7, and then next week we see it three times in chapter 8. And Ezra, who writes this book, he wants us to get it. When things are repeated in the Bible uh, like this, it means... God wants us to get this. This is important. And as we've looked through this book, we've seen God's providence at work so often. In chapter 6, we saw it described as the eyes of the Lord were upon the elders. Here we see the hands of the Lord upon Ezra. It's the same principle. It's the providence of God. We define providence as God's foreseeing protection and his care for his creatures. His direction... Of all things to fulfill his purposes. And because of the providence of God, he is in control of everything. And the people of God can move forward confidently because we know that God is in control. So Ezra was devoted to his ministry. He kept going, he kept moving. But he could do this only because he knew that God was in control. He could do this only because he knew that the hand of God was upon him. And this is so important because I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like, what's the point in doing all of this? Sometimes we can feel like giving up. But the truth of God's providence tells us, no, God is in control. It's God who gives the blessing and even if we don't see the blessing... God is in control. It is for him that we work. It is to him we give the glory. And we can move forward confidently, serving God because we know that he is in control. And in this chapter, that providence is shown, as in previous chapters, through correspondence, through a letter between the king and God's people. And we see this letter in chapter 7 from verses 11 all the way down to to verse 26. Now I'm not going to read the whole letter again and we haven't got time to go in detail in all of this letter. But we see three things in summary of this letter that shows God in absolute control and the hand of the Lord at work. First of all, we see in verses 11 to 14 an introduction and giving the purpose of the mission to Jerusalem. Then secondly, in verses 15 to 24, we see the supply of materials needed for the mission. And then in verses 25 and 26, we see the supply of the authority needed to fulfil the mission. So we'll very briefly look at those three things. So from verse 6, it appears that Ezra had asked if he could go to Jerusalem with the purpose of re-establishing the law which he was so devoted to. And so in verses 13 and 14, the king in answer to this request, declares that any Israelite can go and that the purpose of the mission, we read, is to inquire about how the law is kept in the province. So that was the purpose. This meant that Ezra, the scribe, was given authority by the king to go and make these inquiries and to reestablish the law. This also meant that God was using the king of Persia, this pagan king, to ensure that his word would be followed. And then from verses 15 to 24, we see God providing for the people with three matters of the materials needed. First of all, we see the cost of the sacrifices in 15 to 20. If Ezra was going to reestablish the law, then we know a lot of law was sacrifice. And so he would need all the animals and different things, and temple vessels. And so God provided amazingly for the people by causing the king of Persia to give money, in verse 20, from the royal treasury and from others in the province of Babylon, in verse 16, who weren't even Jewish. This amazing supply of money came, not just from uh, the king, not from the people of God, but even from outside of God's people. Money poured in for God's people to worship in the temple. So they had the, 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 the sacrifices needed, the money needed. Then in verses 21 to 23, Ezra receives what, we can, what he can claim for expenses. When I worked in IT, I, I could claim expenses and I thought my expenses were quite generous. I used to get a certain amount of money for food and I always used to think that was great because I could eat like a king. But here, these expenses claims were quite amazing if you noticed them. So look at verses 21 to 23. He's given 100 talents, which is about 375 tons uh, of uh, silver and 100 cores, which is 18 tons of wheat. And then, I love this, the wine and the olive oil are measured in baths. Now that is exactly what you think. A bath. It's measured in baths. They had what is effectively 2,200 litres of wine and olive oil, which they measured in baths. There's loads of it. All they could, and they could have all the salt they wanted. And verse 23 says that Ezra could have whatever God prescribed in his law. So if Ezra needed wine, he could make an expenses claim up to the value of 2,200 litres or all of these baths of wine. And the third matter of supply is found in verse 24. The priests could work tax-free. No taxes if you worked in the temple. Sounds great, doesn't it? All of this from the king of Persia. He's not even a believer in God. He's a pagan king, giving all of these supplies and expenses to the people of God. So, and then finally, in verses 25 and 26 in this letter, we see the supply of authority. Ezra was told to appoint magistrates and judges to ensure that this law was kept. These judges were to be ones who know God's law. And if there aren't people who know God's law, then Ezra was to teach them. And they were to have authority over the people, it says, of the whole of the trans-Euphrates. That's the province where God's people lived. And the punishment for not following God's Uh, law can be found in verse 26. He had a choice of what he could do with them. He could kill them with death, there could be banishment, confiscation of property, or if they wanted to get let off lightly, they could go to prison. And the king of Persia wasn't a follower of God. He did not run a Jewish empire. He was a pagan king. And yet he had God's hand on him to give Ezra all of this so that God's people could have the law re-established in the land. It's as if, imagine our government passing an act of parliament that said that all churches uh, could practice their own religion in such a way that they they could do whatever they want. They could claim expenses from the state and have all of the needs they want supplied in order that they can worship God in the way the Bible says. And it was an act of parliament, sealed, be amazing, wouldn't it, if, if the government was to, was to do that? But that's exactly what's happening here, in a, in a government with no Christian background. No, you know, Our prime minister, well, it doesn't matter what you think of him, he claims, at least, to, 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 to know about God. But the king of Persia, he was a complete pagan king, and yet established these laws so that God's people could worship. Why did he do this? Well, at the end of verse 23... We read his motivation. Why should his wrath fall on the realm of the king and his sons? At this time, the king of Persia was at war with Egypt and the empire was not secure. He wanted all the help he could get, so he thought, well, I'll give them what they want and maybe they'll pray for me. But it was a policy of the Persians to allow people to go back to their native land and worship in the way that they wanted to. And Artaxerxes continued this policy. And it made good sense too, for for Judah was on the way through to Egypt. And he wanted people who supported him to be in this strategic location. But really the main reason is in verse 6. The king had granted Ezra everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord was upon him. The hand of the Lord was upon him. Proverbs 21 verse 1 says, In the Lord's hand the king's heart is as a stream of water that he channels toward all who please him. Really, the king of Persia was just in God's hand and God just directed him just as a stream of water. God is in control of kings. And so Ezra worked hard, devoting himself to the word. And then in God's time, God moved the heart of the king so that Ezra could go and re-establish the law. And that's always the way that ministry works. There are times when we feel like we're wading through treacle as God's people. We look around and we think there's nothing happening here. And there are times when we might feel like we're going down a slide and things are really happening. But it's the Lord who times these things. But it's always the season for us to be devoted to God. There are different seasons of our lives, different seasons of our history, but it's always the season to be devoted to God. Sometimes there are reasons why things aren't going right. Sometimes if there's sin in the camp, that's a reason that God doesn't bless. And it's right that we try out new strategies, new things to reach our culture, providing the gospel message doesn't change. But in the end, it's the hand of the Lord that we rely upon. And this, uh, in, 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 in response to this hand of the Lord, we see Ezra respond in two ways at the end of the chapter. And the first is found in verse 27 and the beginning of verse 28. And that response is giving glory to God. Look at verse 27, he says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honour to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way and who has extended his good favour to me before the king and his advisers and all the king's powerful officials. Ezra gives glory to God when things go well. It was God who moved the heart of the king to want to honour the temple in Jerusalem in this way. It was God who enabled Ezra to travel 900 miles in four months in the summer. It was God who gave Ezra favour with the king and so to God be the glory. Great things he has done. Ezra gives glory to God when things are going well. When things are going well and when God is blessing the church, let us not take credit for ourselves. I quoted this when um, I I preached, I think it was um, on the Lord's Prayer, with Thy Will Be Done, or Hallowed Be Your Name. But it's my favourite Spurgeon quote, and there are many good Spurgeon quotes. But it's in a book called Only a Prayer Meeting, and he says that our God takes care always to have security that if he works a great work by us, we shall not appropriate the glory to ourselves. That means that God will only answer prayers where he will be glorified. So there's a question for us there, isn't it? Is that what is the reason that God isn't working because we will appropriate the glory for ourselves? Spurgeon then also goes on to say that some trumpets are so stuffed with self that God cannot blow through them. Ezra gave glory to God. And God worked through him. And I have to pray about this a lot. It, 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 am I prepared, if God blesses this ministry here, to, to give God the glory? It's a prayer we must pray. Help me, Lord, to be humble and to glorify your name. So the first response is give glory to God. And the second response is at the end of verse 28. Because the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, I took courage and gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. Knowing God's hand was upon him gave him courage to go to Jerusalem and fulfil what God had planned for him to do. Perhaps God is calling one of you to serve in a new area of the church. Take courage. The hand of the Lord is upon you. Perhaps this week... You've got to obey Christ in your workplace in a, in a way that will be really awkward. Take courage. The hand of the Lord is upon you. Perhaps you need to talk to someone about Christ. Take courage. The hand of the Lord is upon you. Perhaps you're anxious about a situation that you're facing right now. Take courage. The hand of the Lord is upon you. Ezra knew God's hand was upon him. He saw God working and knew that he could trust him and go and fulfil his mission. And so he took courage, he got his people together and he went. And in chapter 8 we'll see what that journey was like back to Jerusalem. But in chapter 7 as we close we see the hand of Ezra learning we also must devote ourselves to God and the hand of the Lord so we must pray. We'll see in the weeks to come how Ezra reforms God's people according to the law. But don't we want a reformation in our own day? Isn't there a longing in your heart for for people to be converted, for God to move? We are in a day perhaps of small things, but wouldn't it be amazing if God would move so that it would be a day of great things in our community and in our nation? In that case, let us be faithful now in our devotion to the Lord, in in following his word, in in doing the basics of Christianity, in evangelism, in, in holy living. And also, let us pray, pray and pray more that the hand of God would move upon us in our day, in our time. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you that you do move and you move powerfully. We thank you that you moved in Ezra's day and we pray, O Lord, that you would move in our day. But until until this time comes where uh, you move in this mighty way, we pray, even in this day of small things,